Okay, so we are coming to chapter 20, the the most infamous chapter 20 of, of uh, Revelation. Uh, the last time we were looking at Revelation, we saw the end of uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, the vindication of, uh, of Jesus Christ. Uh, we've been witness to the destruction of the earthly city, the temple, the wiping away of, of biblical Judaism which has never returned to the earth. Uh, today, there's only what's called rabbinic Judaism. Uh, but once again, I'll encourage you to go back and listen to all the podcasts that have come before so you can get your bearings and understand all that we are going to look at in context. Um, uh, I wish I could say I'm looking forward to this chapter, but to be honest, I'm I'm really looking forward to getting through with this chapter and getting into chapter 21, 22, the, two of my favorite chapters of Scripture. Um, the reason... Uh, uh, for the trepidation about this chapter is because this is the most controversial and debated chapter in the book of Revelation, perhaps the whole Bible. Um, in this chapter, we're going to look at the millennium. Uh, millennium means the thousand years. Milli is thousand annum years. Uh, and the millennium is far and away the topic that is most argued about among Christian interpreters of Revelation. Uh, so first, let me beat the dead horse and say many people disagree about the millennium, and there's absolutely no reason for Christians who are united in the true gospel to break fellowship over this. Uh, there are smart and godly people who come at this from 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 different perspectives. So before we even get into the text, let me take a moment and just outline the three basic positions that people hold about the millennium. That's the thousand year reign of Christ, the golden age, the kingdom age. Um, there are subsets of some of these uh, views, but I'm just going to give you a very simplistic presentation about the the three dominant views of the millennium. The first is called premillennialism. Now, I'm, I'm going to get tongue tied throughout this episode, probably, so you'll have to bear with me. Uh, premillennialism. Uh, premillennialism is called premillennium because this uh, s- believes this viewpoint says that the second coming of Christ will happen first. And then the thousand years will take place. Then the millennium will take place. The thousand year reign of Christ will come after the second coming. Jesus will return. Uh, he will set up an earthly throne and rule on the earth for a thousand years in this golden age, this kingdom age, before the final battle uh, in the end of history come. Uh, now, there are lots of intricacies about this this uh, viewpoint. There are lots of uh, things and that, that go on when you talk about uh, him ruling on on the earth. Well, there's you know sometimes people say they're they're heavenly and earthly beings dwelling together in this new kingdom. And of course, he's in the temple in Jerusalem. Will we bring sacrifices to the temple? And there are people on both sides of the issue. Uh, there are subsets of premillennialism. I'm not going to get into them too deeply. Uh, one is called historic premillennialism, and the other is dispensational premillennialism. Now, we've seen dispensationalism already in our look at Revelation, but the dispensationalist uh, premillennialism will be, uh, you know, a, a, lots of different, uh, lots of different judgments, lots of different things go on. Uh, Jesus comes secretly to take the church, and then there's seven years of. of you know tribulation and then he comes back again and then this is the thousand years it's a lot of lot of intricacies that go and i don't mean to make light of that position there are, um, that is probably the majority position among evangelicals today uh, although it has not been throughout history um, that's premillennialism 
uh, post-millennialism is going to be just the opposite. The thousand-year reign of Christ, uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ comes first, and the second coming comes after the thousand year. Uh, now, postmillennialists is they believe uh, this viewpoint believes that uh, the gospel is going is going forth and conquering in the in the earth, and the world will largely, both culturally, governmentally, and practically in the individual lives of people, uh, conquer the world. It will be more than not Christianized, so to speak. Doesn't mean that everybody in the world is going to be a Christian, or that every every person in the whole planet is going to be saved. But the the culture humanity in general, the earth in general, uh, for the most part, will be conquered by the gospel Christianized, and that will usher in this thousand-year reign, this thousand-year golden age. And at the end of that thousand-year reign, uh, Christ will return at the at the end of history. That's post-millennialism. Now, that is very simplistic. There is a lot of, uh, lot of thought, a lot of depth, a lot of intricacies that go into that viewpoint. I'm just trying to get you to a, a simple level of understanding when we say these words. Uh, the third view is called ah millennialism. Uh, ah millennialism, um, and this viewpoint says that the millennium uh, is the thousand years is a symbol of the long period of time of the church age. The thousand year reign began at Christ's resurrection when He ascended to the Father and sat down at the right hand of the Father, uh, and the thousand years describes the entirety of the church age. It's not meant to uh, be, you know, an exact number as if it's not 999 years and 364 days. It's actually a thousand years or it's not a thousand and one years. It's just showing this long period of time that is the church age. It takes place it takes place. It begins at the. It begins at the uh, the resurrection of Christ, and it ends at the culmination of history, the second coming of Christ. It is these this thousand year reign, uh, and so these are the millennial views. views. Uh, I'll I'll probably you'll you'll understand what mine is very quickly as we go through Revelation twenty. Uh, but let me say this before we start. All three of these millennial views fit well into Orthodox Christianity. Uh, great scholars, godly people throughout history have held all three of these views. There have been some in each of these camps. Uh, so one's millennial view is not an issue believers should break fellowship over. Um, I don't even think they should be arguing over it. We discuss it. We enjoy talking with each other. We, we en- enjoy heated intramural debates and those things. But you know, it is not something that we we can rightly divide over. Um, and to be fair, it's possible to hold any of these millennial views and still see most of Revelation fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem, as we have shown all the way up to Revelation. Uh, to be fair, I have you know never met a premillennialist that that believes that, but it's possible that they could. Um, most of them are going. Almost all of them are going to believe that. The, uh, the the vast majority of revelation happens in the future. Um, uh, Post millennialists, a lot of them believe that is the destruction of Jerusalem and then the Christianizing of the world. Uh, and the millennialists, for the most part, are going to believe. Uh, there are some that believe that it is the destruction of Jerusalem, but that most of them, for the most part, are going to just see the spiritual uh, application to the entirety of of the church age. So before we even look at the verses, let me let me first also say I'm, I know I'm giving a lot of introduction. Material that this is the point 
this is the point, Revelation 20, where we have moved past, in the visions, we have moved past the destruction of Jerusalem. John is now seeing a vision that will be directly uh, uh, applicable to the church age. Of course, all the visions that we've seen are applicable to the church age, but we have moved past the destruction of Jerusalem. And later in this chapter, we're going to move even beyond the church age to the end of time, to the end of history. So as we walk through this chapter, we're going to be looking at uh, a lot of New Testament verses to provide context to what we're seeing and and i think it will be clear and uh, i'm not even going to tell you you probably already know by now if you know the way that we've been looking at revelation but i'm not going to tell you what my millennial view is uh you you'll be able to figure it out as we move through so let me read verses one through three in chapter 20 it says then i saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon the serpent of old who is the devil and satan and bound him for a thousand years and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed after these things he must be released for a short time so john sees John sees an angel coming down from heaven with the the keys to the abyss. Now, we've seen the image of keys uh, several times before in Revelation, and it's always a symbol of authority. We saw it in Revelation 118, where Christ says in his introduction, he says, uh, I possess the keys. I have the keys of death and Hades. I have the keys of death and and, and hell in some translations, but Hades is the Greek word. In uh, in Revelation 3, 7, uh, Christ possesses the key of David. Remember where he says, I open a door no man can shut, and, and, and shut a door no man can open. And then in, in Revelation 9, 1, we saw the key of the abyss was given to the star that fell, you know, we the Abaddon. We, we talked about that in Revelation 9. Um, and he had the key, but remember, it said the key was given to him. And so... Um, here again, we see Christ possessing the keys. Now, whether this angel is actually a representative of Christ in the sense that it symbolizes Christ or it's an angel representing Christ, I don't think it matters. We've we've tackled that question before in Revelation. Uh, the point is that it is God's angel. It is a representative uh, of God and his power, and he has the key of the abyss. Um, so what you see here is Christ having the authority of over all things, including Satan and the abyss himself. So this angel you know there's a there's no uh, no hint of a struggle no hint of a you know the angel had to headlock satan and then drag him to the ground and overpower him he just says he binds him casts him into the abyss um and so what i want to submit to you today is uh of course i told you i wasn't going to tell you but i I will uh my view of the millennium is uh decidedly amillennial it used to be post-millennial it used to it used to be that the gospel's conquering and of course the gospel is conquering but that the world would be christianized uh and then christ would uh, christ the thousand year reign and christ would return um a long time ago i was pre-millennial so you could say i've spent my time in all three of the views but i believe based on the the text of what we see here that it the the millennial reign is the entirety of the church age the entirety of the time between the resurrection and ascension and the second coming of christ the end of end of history so the first question you're going to ask the first question we always ask is how in the world can you say that satan is bound in the church age i mean how can you possibly think given the state of the world today that satan is bound if you look at the text remember that's what we've done all through revelation we've looked at the text we've tried to put away our traditions 
tried to put away all the things that we've been uh, taught, all the things that all the stories that we heard, and just look at what the text says. Satan is bound, not completely and totally, but from a singular activity. He is bound so that he would not no longer deceive the nations. He's not bound from all activity on the earth. Let me read uh, verses two and three again. The angel laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that, this is the purpose, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. That is the reason why the Satan is bound. He's not bound from all activity, but all he's bound from deceiving the nations. Think about this for a moment. Until Jesus' incarnation, until Jesus came in flesh and and uh, you know, preached preaching ministry, gave the gospel, died on the cross, and the apostles went forth with that message to the Gentiles. Really, the only the only nation that knew the true God was Israel. The uh, the nations, quote unquote, the the Gentiles, uh, if they wanted to come into a relationship with God, uh, you had to become part of Israel, or you had to worship the God of Israel. You had to be connected to this uh, this this nation, this culture, this uh, uh, this worship practice. Outside of Israel, the nations were largely ignorant of God, and so. What you see here is Satan uh, holding sway over the nations up until the time that the gospel is sent forth. You can see this in Acts 26, verse, uh, verses 16 through 18, uh, when Paul uh, is um, is uh, relating the vision that he uh, – not the vision, but relating his conversion experience. He's uh, he's uh, on trial, and he's giving the, the, the events that led to his conversion. And he, he, um, he quotes uh, – he quotes um, – Jesus speaking to him, and he says in Acts 26, this is what Jesus said to Paul, um, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you've seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Now listen to this. He says, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they, the Gentiles, may turn from darkness to light and from the domin- from the dominion of Satan to God. That's what Jesus told Paul. He says, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to turn them from the dominion of Satan to God so that they might receive forgiveness of sins and, uh, and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That's Acts chapter 26, verses 16 through 18. Read, read that, and you can see uh, what it means that they were under the dominion of, of Satan. Satan is bound from the activity of deceiving, uh, from deceiving the nations. Uh, and to be honest, if you take it in the context of chapter 19, remember chapter 19 when and uh, um, uh, there was uh, uh, the the word of God came forth, uh, Christ riding on a white horse. The word of God goes out and it destroys uh, it destroys the rest of the people, the rest of the nations that had set themselves up against uh, set themselves up against uh, Christ and His people. It really makes little sense here in chapter twenty uh, to describe uh, to say that Satan is kept from deceiving the nations if those are the nations that were completely annihilated in chapter 19. Uh, And so 
what we're going to see here uh, is after Christ, after the gospel is proclaimed by Christ and then the apostles, the death, burial, resurrection, um, the gospel goes forth to the nations. That's exactly what we see in uh, in the book of Acts and even in the, the epistles of the New Testament. Uh, Satan is still active, but he is bound from deceiving the nations and keeping them from coming into God's kingdom. The gospel, the gospel is the power of God for all who believe, and it says, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. Now, of course, he still Satan still deceives people, uh, but in the presence and the power of the gospel, he is powerless to keep the nations to keep the nations uh, under his power. He's powerless to keep the nations uh, deceived away from the kingdom of God. The gospel goes forth, breaking that bond, uh, binding him from his power. Now, you may be thinking, okay, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of with you. Uh, I understand that, but this language of being bound with a chain and, you know, that, that kind of seems like he really is bound from all activity. When exactly are you saying that Satan was bound? If he's bound from deceiving the nations now, uh, during the church age, during the time that the gospel is going forth before the second coming, when exactly did that take place? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, I'm going to read you quite a few New Testament verses about, uh, about the binding of Satan and about how it is told to us in the gospels that uh, Satan is bound through the death, the burial, resurrection, through the preaching of the good news. In Matthew 12, verse 29, uh, Jesus is... talking about you know the the pharisees have come to him and they are are saying that he does his power by the work of the devil and all those kind of things and jesus is rebuking that and he's saying no he's not doing it by the power of the devil he's doing it by the power of god and he says this in matthew 12:29 he says but if i cast out demons by the spirit of god he says then the kingdom of god has come upon you and then he says or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Jesus is saying, how can you say that I'm taking Satan, you know, that I'm uh, with Satan in bringing the the removal of these uh, casting out these demons uh, when, in fact, in order to do so, I first have to bind the strong man and then I go and I plunder his house uh, in Luke 11, 21 and 22, you see the same thing. Jesus says, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He's saying, this is what I have done. I am the stronger one that has come into the the house of Satan, so to speak, the, the dominion of him, and I am conquering him. I am overpowering him. You can see it in John chapter 12, right before the uh, the upper room discourse. Uh, Jesus says, uh, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And, and in Luke 10, that's a, one of the staple passages. L- Luke 10 is where Jesus sent out the 70 and uh, and sent them out to preach the gospel. And, of course, they came back to him uh, rejoicing that demons were subject to them and that all the success they had. And uh, it says in Luke chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, it says, The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I was watching. I saw Satan fall 
from heaven like lightning. And, of course, you have passages like Colossians 2.15 that say, talking about the crucifixion, says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, having made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. He's talking about the authorities, the uh, spiritual principalities and powers. And then in Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, you have, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, talking about Jesus, that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And so we see throughout the New Testament, we are seeing depictions of the gospel, the power of, of God, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the good news of Jesus, uh, um, overturning Satan's power in the nations, overturning Satan's dominion over the world. This is what Jesus told Paul he was he was being sent to do, was to bring light to the Gentiles and turn them from the dominion of Satan to the dominion of God. So this binding of Satan is, uh, in fact, the truth of the gospel that goes forth, the vindication of Christ, that his death, his burial, his resurrection is, in fact, the um, the the. Uh, the way to God, the way to be saved, the way to come into God's kingdom. Now, another controversial subject is the thousand years. I mean, is it a literal thousand years, which means no more, no less? It's not a thousand and one years. It's not 999 years. It's a, a thousand years. Um, a lot of people, it's very strange to me when you, you, you listen to people interpret Revelation, and there are a lot of good ones out there. Uh, most of the time, a lot of the time, I shouldn't say most of the time, uh, what you'll hear is they'll rightly interpret the symbolic nature of the book all the way up until you get all the way until you get to Revelation 19 and 20. And then all of a sudden, every nothing symbolic anymore. Everything is a, a chronological play by play of the end of history. When the reality is John is keeping with this, the same motif that he's had throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, it's a, a symbolic book in nature. And it, the most of the symbols come from what we see in the uh, symbolic uh, prophetic utterances of the Old Testament. Uh, and of course, Numbers you've already seen in Revelation uh, specifically that numbers uh, are some of the most symbolic things that we see in Revelation. You know, you got the ten horns and you got the seven heads and power is given to them for an hour uh, to the churches. He told them uh, they're going to place you in prison for 10 days. You have the hundred and forty four thousand you have. I mean, the numbers are symbolic throughout the entire book of Revelation. But for some reason, when people get to this number. Uh, all of a sudden numbers are, they're no longer symbolic. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's absolutely has to be, it's not, not 999 years and 364 days. It's exactly a thousand years. Uh, but the number thousand is consistently used in scripture as just simply a large number. Uh, it's not intended to in indicate an exact amount uh, in Deuteronomy 7 9 it says know therefore that the Lord your God he is God the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to the thousandth generation okay so that means that the Lord your God is not faithful to the thousand and first generation 
No, of course that's not what it means. It means to all generations. It means to a huge number of generations. Psalm 5010, one of the uh, most familiar passages that we have. Uh, he says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. So does that mean that God doesn't own the cattle on the thousand and first hill? Uh, he only owns a thousand hills worth of cattle. Of course, that's not what it means. And then you have Joshua twenty three ten. One of your men will put to flight a thousand. Uh, does that mean you better not tackle more than a thousand, or you know, don't go into battle if there's only nine hundred guys because you're supposed to be putting a thousand to flight? No, it's a way of speaking. It's a figure of speech. Psalm ninety one seven. A thousand may fall at your right side, uh, ten thousand at your left. First Chronicles sixteen fifteen. Remember his covenant for. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations. Does that mean he didn't command it to the thousand and first? Of course, that's not what it means. And there are many other examples of a thousand in the in the Old Testament scriptures. Um, this simply infers a long period of time, the same way that the thousandth generation does. It's a it's a long extended period of time, and it uh, it is uh, moving us beyond. It's moving us beyond the uh, the the near time uh, context of Revelation. You know, in the beginning of Revelation, it says these things must shortly come to pass, and then at the end of Revelation, the very end, the last book, the last section of the last chapter, it's going to say, "Don't seal these things up because the the time." is near you know it's it's quickly going to come to pass but here the thousand years it's not a short time it's a long time it can't be it can't be part of that short time and so what it's talking about is there's this great period of time he bound him for a thousand years bound him from deceiving the nations Um, if you're still getting stuck up on the bound bounding satan part think about this ask yourself this question is this a real chain you know, he says, I saw an angel with a key and a chain and he came and he bound Satan. Is it a real chain? How long is the chain? How thick is the chain? What kind of chain is needed to bind a spiritual being like Satan? Uh, is it a, uh, you know, is it made out of steel? Is it made out of iron? Is it made out of magic material? You know, what kind of chain are we talking about here? And, uh, you know, what's the what's the uh, illusion that he's bringing forward to, uh, to for us to understand? And, of course, if you're I mean, if you're. If you're honest, you're understanding that the chain is is symbolic. He is binding Satan from deceiving the nations. Um, you know, Jesus is not really a lamb with seven horns. Satan really doesn't look like a physical dragon. Um, this is material language. Speaking of the chain uh, and, and, and these things used to describe a spiritual reality. Satan is a spiritual being, and yes, Satan is bound from deceiving the nations because the gospel is more powerful than he. The gospel has overtaken him the preaching of the good news the death the burial and the resurrection uh it it, uh, asserts its will if that's probably not the best way to put it but it asserts its will throughout satan's dominion and there's nothing he can do about it Uh, god is bringing people into his kingdom satan is bound for this time so now let's look at verse four and john is going to see a vision of what he calls the first Resurrection. You have this binding of Satan from deceiving the nations, and now what we're going to see is the what he calls the first resurrection. Verse four is a long verse, so let's just read it in its entirety. It says, "Then I saw thrones, and they uh, sat on them, and judgment was given to them." 
And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is during this time that Satan's bound, this thousand years, this millennium. Um, The reign of the believers here is what we referred to earlier as the intermediate state. Uh, The intermediate state is... Uh, I don't know if I d- told you earlier, uh, but the intermediate state is what we describe when 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 you die. If before Christ returns, if you die, your soul will go to be with the Lord and you will be there with him to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That is the called the intermediate state. And, uh, when, and when Christ returns and the end of history comes, your soul is reunited with a body, a perfected body, incorruptible body. And uh, there will be a new heavens and a new earth that is called the eternal state. And so what he's describing here is believers in the intermediate state. Uh, the intermediate state is the time before the final resurrection. When when you know the believer dies, soul goes to be go, goes to be with uh, with uh, the Lord. So what we're seeing here is believers, both those who died during the tribulation of the first century, the martyrs that were beheaded for the testimony and for the word of God. And we're seeing also all believers that will die in this thousand years, in this church age, they are reigning with Christ in heaven. If you notice, it says judgment was given to those on the throne. John says that he saw the thrones and judgment was given to the ones who sat on the thrones. Um, there are a few things that we should notice when we when we look at the this text, the, the description of the people on the thrones. If you notice the same language, the same language here in Revelation chapter 20 of those that are sitting on these thrones is used in Revelation chapter 6 verse 9. You remember chapter 6? That was when the fifth seal was opened. John saw the souls of those who were martyred under the altar. The same language is used here uh, is used there of these martyrs, of these souls. Uh, You see, and I saw of course in both places, you see the souls of those who had been slain in chapter 6, the souls of those beheaded uh, here in chapter 20, uh, the reason they were slain, the reason they were beheaded because of the word of God. You see that in chapter six. You see that here in chapter 20 and because of the testimony of Jesus. You see that in chapter six. You see that in chapter 20. And so what you see here is the same language that we have already seen before in Revelation six. This is speaking of the same reality that we saw in chapter six. The martyrs that were killed, uh, their souls were under the altar. Their souls were with the Lord. Their souls were in heaven. And it says here that they were given judgment. They were given thrones. They they have been vindicated. Of course, in the in the the, the uh, destruction uh, of their uh, persecutors, but. Also, they are now ruling and reigning with Christ. It says the souls of the martyrs. Notice that it's the souls of these people. Let me read the verse to you again. Uh, verse four says, then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God who had not worshiped the beast or his image had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. It's the souls of those martyrs. The, the martyrs reign with with Christ for a thousand years, and it's the souls of the 
faithful who did not receive the mark, who did not uh, worship the beast, the faithful, the the ones who stood fast in their faith in Christ, they reign with Christ. Um, these are those who physically died and are reigning with Christ right now in heaven. They represent all those who die in Christ. Remember that John is is writing to encourage and ensure the uh, the that the the suffering church uh, that their suffering is not the end. That this is not the end. He's encouraging them to stand fast in the midst of persecution and suffering and trial and tribulation. And he's showing them that even if you die, even when you die, um, when you are uh, beheaded for the testimony of Christ. Christ or or those things happen, you will come to life and you will reign with Christ for a thousand years. And of course, you see the duration of their reign. They they came to life. It says at the moment of death, they came to their eternal life at the moment of death. They uh, were resurrected, so to speak. Uh, and just as Paul said, you know, to be absent from the bodies present with the Lord. Um there are some who take this also to speak about regeneration, uh, about when uh, a person is born again. You know, you have passages like Ephesians chapter two, verse five, that says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, uh, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Uh, and so we we see here a picture of life. We see a picture of eternal life. We see the fact that uh, though you may be beheaded, though you may uh, die for the word of God, Though these things uh, are going to take place, uh, though the, though death is coming, uh, if Christ doesn't return, he says, when you die, he says, if faithful to the Lord, born again by the Spirit of God, you come to life and are given, uh, you are made priests and kings. We're going to see that in a moment. And he says, they reigned with him for a thousand years. Um what about this thousand years? Uh, what about this reigning? I mean, how can you say that they're reigning right now? They're ruling right now, that Christ is ruling and his saints are ruling with him. Uh, what does it mean that they are given rule? You know, I thought when you die, you just go hang out in heaven and, you know, you hang out with the angels and, and get to play in the crystal sea and do all those things. What's this idea of reigning and ruling? Well, I submit to you that it's not a new idea in the New Testament. It's something that you've seen over and over and over again if you've read your New Testament. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 says, uh, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Remember, it said judgment was given to them. Matthew 19, verse 28, and Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Second uh, Timothy two verse twelve says, "If we endure, we will also reign with him." And he even told in Revelation itself, in the the letters, uh, letter to one of the churches in Revelation three twenty one, it says, "He." This is the letter to Laodicea. He says, "He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my." father on his throne so they're given this judgment they're given reign they are made uh, like it says in the beginning of revelation kings they're made to be kings and priests a kingdom of priests uh, but once again the questions are uh, comes i mean how can you say that Jesus is reigning right now? I mean, look at the news, man. Right now, I'm, I'm recording this. The news is on the television with the sound down. I mean, how can you say with all that's going on in the world, all the evil, all the things that are happening, that Jesus is reigning right now? It just doesn't make much sense. Well, I submit to you that, uh, that the New Testament backs up the fact that Jesus was given uh, the kingdom uh, when he uh, ascended 
ascended to the Father. Matthew 18, uh, verses 18 through 20. Or, or 28, verses 18 through 20, excuse me. It says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, This is what he said. This is what Jesus said right before he ascended. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he gives them the command, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Uh, remember Daniel's prophecy? We spoke about it three or four times in the context of Revelation. The Son of Man, Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man ascending to the Ancient of Days. And what happens when he ascends to the Ancient of Days? It says he receives glory and dominion and a kingdom. And this is, we've seen this before, it was fulfilled in the ascension of Christ. Christ ascended to the throne when he ascended from heaven in the class, or ascended from the earth, uh, sat down at the right hand of the Father. He was given uh, the kingdom. He was given the name that uh, is above every name. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, it says, When he raised him from the dead, talking about the Father raising the Son from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So it's not a New Testament novelty to say here in Revelation that Christ is reigning during the age of the church through the gospel in the hearts of his people. It's not a novelty. Jesus himself said as he ascended to heaven, all power and all authority in both heaven and in earth has been given to me. Doesn't that give you uh, a peace. It gives you a, a rest knowing that, you know, that Christ is in control. Christ does have all authority in heaven and earth. It gives you a, uh, it gives you a comfort knowing that, that, that the one who died for you, the one who loves you, the one who, the one who, uh, imparted his spirit to you is, uh, is ruling and, and reigning. And then in verse five and six, it says, uh, verse five says, speaking of this, they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. It says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And then he says, this is the first resurrection. So the rest of the dead here is the unsaved dead. They have no part in the uh, in, in the first resurrection. The rest of the dead, they, they don't know nothing of they don't know nothing. Wow, that's a double negative. They don't know anything about this this life gained with Christ. Uh, uh, this doesn't indicate some kind of, you know, soul sleep or they, you know, they're uh, unconsciously whatever until the second coming. Uh, it indicates simply that the unsaved dead will remain in torment. They will remain in death, remain in in Hades, remain in uh, conscious torment until the final judgment. They don't they don't have any. um experience of this life with Christ, this life, this eternal uh, bliss, this eternal reign with Christ. Uh, so what you see here is believers, they partake in two resurrections. The first resurrection, uh, you, we can make the case that it's when you are born again, you are resurrected to new life. But even when you physically die, you are resurrected. You come to life and reign with Christ and are given uh, this this throne in the presence of Christ, made to sit with me on my throne is what Jesus said. Uh, but unbelievers, they partake in two deaths. Of course, they die physically like everybody else, but they will also, and we'll see this here in Revelation 20, they also will experience eternal death. The believer dies physically, but experiences spiritual resurrection, where the unbeliever is resurrected physically. We'll see that here in a minute. But he experiences spiritual death. He says this is the first resurrection. This is the first. So understand this. When you 
if if we if taken in the context that we frame this in, uh, if we understand what this text is saying, uh, death truly doesn't have any power over us anymore. There is no sting. The grave holds no victory over us anymore because when the moment that we close our eyes here on this physical plane in this life, our eyes are opened again uh, to rule and reign with Christ until the thousand year period is is finished, until the church age is done and Christ returns. So this is, uh, you know, death is a, a scary thing i'm a i'm a hospital chaplain and and i work in the the ward where you know usually when you go to that section of the hospital you don't leave um on your feet and so uh, death is a scary thing and people face it in all kind of different ways but we as believers can face it uh with comfort knowing that um, that we will we will come to life i mean immediately and we will reign with christ we will be with christ in heaven uh, he gives us in verse six the benefits of this first resurrection. He said, this is the first resurrection. He said, blessed and holy is the one who has a part. This is verse six in chapter 20. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. He says, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So the benefits of this resurrection, of course, the blessed. I mean, we just enumerated the blessings. They're blessed to enjoy life with Christ. I mean, it's similar to Revelation fourteen thirteen, where it says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, is the spirit that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Um, and then uh, Revelation two ten, we've seen that before uh, to one of the letters of the seven churches. He says, be faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown. I'll give you the crown of life. Uh, they are they are blessed. They are uh, happy. Uh, this word, you know, blessed are they who hunger and thirst. They are enjoying the blessed state, the blessed state, the this uh, this resurrection, this this life with Christ. But also they have been made holy. They're blessed and they're holy. It says they're made holy by Christ. They're perfected in this glorified state as they reign and rule with Christ. No longer does sin have uh, uh, have any hold on them. No longer do they battle with uh, the flesh and, and those kind of things. They are holy in the sight of God. But they're also made priests and they're made kings uh, it doesn't say kings in this text but it says they're reigning with him so it's the same thing we've seen before in revelation they're made priests and they're made kings they're they're priests to god in his heavenly in the heavenly holy of holies that we've seen so many times in revelation they are there in the presence of of the holiest uh, and they are priests to him and they reign with him for the entirety of the church age so there we see what we've seen so far is we've seen the binding of Satan uh, as far as the uh, deceiving of the nations. And we have seen the first resurrection of those who have who have died physically and are uh, brought and are uh, come to life and reign with Christ. Now, what we're going to see is um, we're going to push off into the future again and see beyond uh, what what the events that come at the end of the church age, at the end of history, at the end of this thousand years. This section ends with they will reign for him in the uh, 4,000 years. And then verse 7 begins by saying when the thousand years are completed, when the thousand years are over, when this age of the gospel going forth and the binding of Satan to deceive the nations is over, uh, it says Satan will be released from his prison now what does this mean does this mean uh, of course we've seen that he is not um 
inactive during this period. And we're going to see that he still has followers during this period because he's going to bring them together. Um, Satan will be released from his prisons. What is he being released to do? What was he bound from doing? He was bound from deceiving the nations. And so he will be released once again to deceive uh, the nations, to gather his forces for battle. It says, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. This is the same um, the same activity that he was bound from earlier. Now he is being released and will come out to deceive the nations, the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. Uh, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So Satan will gather his forces for battle at the end of this thousand years at the end of this church age so we're looking forward to the end of the church age looking forward now to the millennium the end of history satan will be released from his bonds but he will be released specifically to deceive the nations uh so this shows us also that he will still have a following during the millennium it won't be it won't be that he's bound and can do nothing he will still have people that will uh be his people uh he's allowed to deceive the nations he's allowed to gather them against god's people at the end of history mankind will see this great rise uh, of evil and hatred toward god so you've probably heard about that you know great falling away you've probably heard about that you know all the all of your life in the uh, expositions of revelation well we see it here at the end of the thousand years satan will be released and he will deceive the nations and he will gather them for the war and so what we see here in verse eight though is something that we really are going to need to look intently at Satan will bring the nations together against God and his people. There's lots of questions that we're going to have to ask right here. So let me just take them one at a time. We're going to talk about who is Gog and Magog. Then we're going to uh, then we're going to talk about what this war entails and, and all that. So, <coughs> excuse me. Gog and Magog. Um, this there's been so much speculation, so much about who Gog and Magog is. Of course, you probably already know that Gog and Magog is a reference from the Old Testament, from Ezekiel chapter thirty-eight and thirty-nine, where Ezekiel prophesies about this this uh, battle, this war uh, against Israel. That of course Israel uh, eventually wins, and Gog and Magog are destroyed. Um, but what you need to see here, and what so many people that are uh, interpreting Revelation uh, fail to see is that they take this this uh, text in Revelation to to be an expansion of the Ezekiel text. What they what they take this to mean is that is uh, John is taking uh, the Ezekiel text where we have the battle against Israel, where Gog and Magog wage war, and to be we don't have a historical reference to who this Gog and Magog is. Uh, some people say the Scythians, some people say different things, but you have this battle, and some people take this text in Revelation to be saying uh, this is the rest of the story. This is, you know, what happens when this battle takes place. Um, but I don't think that's the case. And I base that on a, a couple of uh, uh, observations. The first is that we have seen Old Testament pictures used throughout Revelation. And almost always they are used to bring over the Old Testament idea into the the New Testament uh uh, explanation. What I mean by that, look in, look in 
the churches, uh, the letters to the churches. What did John called, uh, Jesus called this woman in Thyatira. He called her Jezebel. Now, is her name really Jezebel? Probably not. Uh, he's using the picture of the Old Testament Jezebel to describe this woman. Uh, we've seen Jerusalem called Sodom. Uh, is it, you know, is it, is it really Sodom? Uh, of course not. Sodom, when you say Sodom and Gomorrah, the images of the wickedness of the city, they flood your mind. It's a picture of, of the characteristics of Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem, not, you know, they didn't rename the city. And I think that's what we see here. If you look in the text, it says, verse 8 says, and, and Satan will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Uh, in the New American Standard is comma, Gog and Magog, comma, to gather them together for war. Gog and Magog are set in apposition, not opposition, but apposition uh, to the nations. Uh, what that means is uh, Gog and Magog is descriptive of these nations. That's who we're talking about. Uh, the nations and Gog and Magog are they're the same group. Uh, and so Gog and Magog provide a wealth of Old Testament imagery for people who who understand their Old Testament and know what we're talking about here. Um, uh, if you look in um, and there's a book called uh, um, it's called the well, it's an exposition of Revelation. It's called the Revelation of John in volume two by William Barclay uh, in the section talking about Revelation 20 verse 11. Uh, he quote he, he talks about Gog and Magog. And let me read this quote to you. He says here we come on a picture which etched itself deeply, if mysteriously, on Jewish thought. The picture of Gog and Magog. We find it first in Ezekiel 38 and 39. There, Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and of Tubal, is to launch the great attack upon Israel and is to be in the end utterly destroyed. It, it may be that originally Gog was connected with the Scythians whose invasions all men feared. Uh, as time went on in Jewish thought, Gog and Magog came to stand for everything that is against God. The rabbis taught that Gog and Magog would assemble themselves and their forces against Jerusalem and would fall by the hand of the Messiah. So what we see here is is John doing the same thing that he has done through the entirety of the book of Revelation. He is importing the picture of an Old Testament text, and he is applying that thought, that image to what we see here in the New Testament reality. In the Ezekiel text, there's a uh, something that just doesn't fit. In the Ezekiel text, if we take that to mean <clears throat> this is the end time battle, in Ezekiel, rather than just importing the image and the picture of the Gog and Magog, uh, in the Ezekiel text, if you read that, 38 and 39, Gog is destroyed before the kingdom age. Uh, and, of course, some are, uh, interpret that as the kingdom age. But here in Revelation, they are destroyed after the thousand years. Did you see that? When the thousand years were released, Satan gathered the nations. And to be honest, to be fair, if, if Ezekiel's vision... In 38 and 39 is the end time battle uh, like this actual physical war that takes place in the ends in the end time uh, of Revelation. It's going to be a very strange looking war <laughs> because in Ezekiel, it was fought on horseback with swords and spears and shields. All these things are mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So evidently. Uh, if we're going to fight a war that's going to end history, we're going to have to do it on horseback in, with shields. And, you know, uh, there's so many things that just don't fit here. And so he says, 
Satan is going to be released to deceive the nations. He's going to gather them together for this war. Uh, they're going to be like the sand of the seashore. And verse 9 says, and they came up, talking about the nations, they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. Now, that's a very strange way to describe uh, the city of Jerusalem, if we're talking about the city of Jerusalem, which I don't believe that we are, and the beloved city. It says, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. That's verse 9. These nations surround the camp of the saints. Now, what is the camp of the saints? Uh, the language harkens back to the camp in the wilderness. You know, of course, where, where God dwelt among his people as they were wandering in the wilderness. Um, so what we need to what we need to ask ourselves, is there a camp? Is there a camp of saints in the new covenant? Is there a camp of saints in the the uh, who, who worship the Messiah? Is there a camp of saints who uh, are a reality through the gospel and through Jesus Christ? And I think the answer would be a resounding duh uh, in the New Testament. The church is the camp of the saints. First Peter uh, chapter two, verse four and five says you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then Paul in Ephesians chapter two, verses 19 through 22 says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens talking to the Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. The camp of the saints, <coughs> excuse me, this war <coughs> uh, is not a, is not a, uh, it's not a picture of uh, all the nations gathering up with their swords and their spears uh, on horseback uh, coming and attacking uh, a particular city. It is the it is the attack on the church, the attack on the people of God, attack on the uh, the camp of the saints that will occur uh, at the end when there is a great falling away, when there is a, a, a great apostasy, when the people are uh, when the church is hated, when the the, the people of God are being uh, persecuted and, and being uh, attacked by the world. Um, but it also says here the beloved city. Now, you can't just pass over that. So it says they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Now, while the, the this exact terminology is is never used of earthly Jerusalem, uh, you can't really just dismiss it because there are many affectionate terms of the the uh, that are given for the the earthly city of Jerusalem. So how can you say that the church is the beloved city? Um, to be honest, I don't have to say that <laughs> because the writer of Hebrews says it for me. So let me just read Hebrews chapter twelve, verse twenty-two through twenty-three. Now remember, the whole book of Hebrews is talking about Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the priesthood. He's better than the temple. Better than the sacrifices. Better than the 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 Moses. Better than he's better than all those things. And in Hebrews 12, the writer culminates by saying that we who are in Christ have come, past tense, to the city of the living God. In verse 12, in chapter 12, verses 22, Hebrews says this. Hebrews 12, 22 says, but you have come to Mount Zion, past tense, have come. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city 
of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly of the church, the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is a picture of... Um, the the attack of Satan, the deceived nations on the church, on the people of God, when the church age culminates, when all this is said and done and we come to the end of history, there will be a great rising up against the people of God. And this quote unquote war that's about to take place here never happens. Look what it says in verse uh, verse nine at the end of verse nine it says they came up uh, surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city and look what it says and fire came down from heaven and devoured them uh, this shows uh, we're going to see the devil and his nations are going to be destroyed fire descended from heaven there's no war fire descended from heaven and destroyed them I mean they are eat up with fire now here's where I'm going to enrage so many people uh you know, send all your send all your hate email to info at joelstein.com because I'm about to make a lot of people mad. This fire that descends from heaven, this is the second coming of Christ. This is Christ returning uh, and destroying his enemies, returning in judgment. And this is when, right after this verse, that the devil's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And the next picture we see is the great white throne judgment. Um, this is the second coming. Now you're saying, whoa, you're putting a whole lot into that fire fell from heaven. Uh, and you're right. You're right, I am. Uh, but in, in if you look at the, the description, Paul's description of the second coming of Christ, uh, in Second Thessalonians verse 1, 6 through 8, it says this, For after all it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to, the, to you who are afflicted, and to us as well as the Lord Jesus, when, we, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've seen the gospel go forth <clears throat> in this thousand years. The church age go forth and <clears throat> Satan is released. Satan is released to deceive the, deceive the nations, and you have Christ returning with his holy angels in flaming fire in order to destroy those who have refused to obey the gospel. Right before the final judgment and the destruction of Satan, Christ will return in judgment upon the wicked. Now, the first question I always get, first question you're going to be asking is, wait a minute, what about the rapture? What about the rapture? There's no, there's just Christ returning, flaming fire, death and judgment, and then the great white throne judgment. Remember, Revelation's not a news report giving us a chronological play-by-play. It's an, in, it's the inspired word of God for the church to exhort them to faithfulness and endurance. Uh, John is not intending to include every little detail. The rapture of the church is reported to us in First Thessalonians chapter four. And so we know that it's going to coincide with these events. Let me say this very clearly, very profoundly, so there's no misunderstanding. Paul does tell us that there will be a rapture of the church where the believers who are alive at the time will be caught up together with Christ to meet him in the air. So we know that it will take place. We know that it's a reality. But 
for for just argument's sake, let's look at those verses very carefully and see what's being said. First Thessalonians four, verse 16 through 18, it says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's what it says to be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and then. It says, and so we will always be with the Lord. And he's, Paul says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so if you notice, the text says the believers will meet him in the air and forever be with the Lord. The text says nothing about going back to heaven with Jesus for another seven years and waiting for the all these things. It says that we will meet him in the air and forever be with the Lord. Uh, the word meet here is only used three times. In the New Testament, uh, of course, it's used here, uh, but it's also used in Acts 28, verse 15. And that's where this delegation comes out of uh, of uh, of Rome to meet Paul as he's uh, going into Rome. It says in uh, Acts 28, 15, and the brethren, when they heard about us, they came from there as far as the market of Appius and uh, and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. And if you keep reading Acts 28, what happened? They went out to meet him, and they accompanied him back to Rome. And we also see the same word used in Matthew chapter 25 when Jesus is giving us uh, the parable of the, the, the ten virgins, the five foolish and the five wise. He says in Matthew 25, verse 6, But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom! Come out to meet him. Now, what did the, bri- what did the brides do? The, the ones who had oil. They came out to meet the bridegroom, and they accompanied him into into the uh, into the house. And so, in all of these texts, the delegation comes out to meet the party, and they accompany the party to their destination. Believers will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and meet Christ in the air, transformed, meet Christ in the air, and accompany the bridegroom to the new earth in his second coming, which culminates in culminates in the new heavens and the new earth anyway. The rapture and the second coming are simultaneous events. There's not a rapture and then, you know, this Russian dude takes over the world and, you know, all these stamps on your forehead and all these kind of things, and then Christ is going to return. The rapture is a real event, and it's going to take place at the same time that the second coming takes place. And we will ever be with the Lord when we are changed, if, if we are the generation that it happens in. Right after this, right, the, the fire falls from heaven, destroys the nations. It says right after this that Satan is through. Verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever. Finally, the end of history has come, and Satan is cast into the lake of fire. He is he is cast out. He is um, he is sent to eternal conscious torment, utterly defeated, and given eternal punishment. Now, many of us have this idea. 
You'll see it if you go to judgment houses or if you'll, uh, you know, especially in movies and books and all this kind of, that Satan is kind of the king of hell, right? He's like, uh, he, he's the one that decides what punishment you get and he's the one who decides, uh, what, what happens and he's out down there laughing at you while you're in torment and all that. That's not the picture that Revelation gives. The picture is that he's right alongside all those who are being tormented, and he himself is being tormented. He himself is in eternal punishment in the lake of fire. <clears throat> now, that's the end of history. It's all, it's over with. Uh, and we're going to see it also explained here. Now we're going to see the final judgment. This is the judgment that the, the world has been moving toward. History has been moving toward uh, from the beginning. We see the great white throne appear. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it uh, and him who and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. This is the dissolution of the heavens and the earth. Heavens and the earth are gone. It says, I saw the great white throne. This is John's vision. Remember, saw the great white throne, the one who sat upon it. The one who sat upon its presence was so great and so glorious that heaven and earth fled away and no place was found for them. This is the dissolution of the old heavens and the old earth. Second Peter 3, 10, uh, verses 10 through 12 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. What sort of people ought you to be in holy? conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat he says second Peter shows us this fleeing of the heavens and earth from the presence from the presence of the one on the throne Jesus has come in full power come in glory seated on his throne and the old heavens and the earth are dissolved we see him on this white throne in verses 12 and 13, we're going to see the dead judged. Now, there is a lot of uh, disagreement here as well. Is this just the unsaved dead or is this all of the dead? Uh, what I'm going to present to you is that it is everyone. It's all of the dead. It's the, it is the judgment. If you're a dispensationalist, you got lots of judgments. You know, you got this judgment here. I think there's some dispensationalists that have up to seven different kind of judgments uh, that are going to take place. But here, the reality is that this is the only judgment of mankind. Of course, sin was judged on the cross and, and things like that. But this is the only judgment. You are once to die, and after that, the judgment. And here it is, the judgment. The dead are brought forth in judgment. Um uh, Jesus continually. This is the reason why. I, let me give you some reasons why I see this as judging. This is this is the judgment. All people are judged here. Uh, Jesus continually pointed to a single judgment in John five verses twenty eight through twenty nine. It says, "Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds." To a um, to a resurrection of judgment, Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter thirteen verse thirty. Uh, this is the parable of the wheat and the tares. Uh, the one owning the 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 um, 
the vineyard, the uh, the field, says, allow both to grow together into the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Uh, and so uh, Matthew thirteen forty seven through 50 is a parable of the kingdom uh, as it compared to uh, uh, catching fish, dragging the sea for fish. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire, like a fire in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you see. This judgment, judgment of the righteous and the wicked coincides one another in Jesus's parables consistently. And then Matthew chapter 25, of course, uh, the parable of the uh, sheep and the goats uh, in verse 32, it says all nations will be gathered before him. All nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So over and over again, as Jesus spoke of the judgment that will come he spoke of it in terms of a complete judgment of all humanity separating the sheep and the goats separating the righteous from the unrighteous all people are going to stand before this throne the dead it says the dead small and great this is the judgment seat of christ right here and he judges all based on their works and i know you're thinking whoa that's not good news. Hang with me. Let's see. We'll see what the rest of this uh, rest of this chapter says. It says in verse twelve, in the second part of twelve, it says, um, "It says, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books plural were opened, and another book singular was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books plural." According to their deed, deeds, the books, the books, the plural books are open. These are the books that contain the deeds of the men. But there is another book that's open, a singular book. This is the book of life and the dead are judged according to what is found in the books, plural, their works, their deeds. All the dead (coughs) are judged according to their deeds. Now, that doesn't sound like a very promising judgment. That doesn't sound like something we want to be at. It doesn't sound like something that. um, is going to be good because if you know your own heart, as I know mine, we are sinful. We're sinful, and that's uh, that's uh, not going to be a good thing. But it says at the end of this chapter that the uh, the criterion for being saved, the criterion for being one of the sheep, is not found in the books plural. The criteria for entering into heaven, the criteria for entering in the new heavens and new earth, for being one with Christ and being saved, is what is found in the book singular. The book of life. We'll see that in a moment. It says death in verse 13. Death and Hades gave up their dead for the judgment and the sea gave up the dead which was in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. Death and Hades. Hades is the place of the dead. Um comparable with Sheol in the Old Testament. It is a place of torment for the unsaved dead, uh, but it no longer holds any man. Uh, death no longer holds any man there. They are called up for the judgment. There will be no more death. Uh, those that are found in death, those that are found, when I say in death, meaning not having taken part in the first resurrection, when uh, when they are found in death in Hades, they are 
completely cast into the lake of fire uh, along with death and along with Hades. They were no longer they are no longer um, in the realm of the the new heavens and the new earth and punishment is rendered. It says then death and Hades was thrown into the lake of fire. It says this is the second death, the lake of fire. This is the second death. This is eternal conscious torment uh death itself and the realm holding the unsaved dead are removed and 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 cast into the lake of fire um all the unsaved dead are cast into eternal punishment separation from god uh although all are judged by their deeds you see in verse 15 the criteria for salvation is not found in the books plural the criteria for salvation is found in the book singular in verse 15 the last verse of this chapter says and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire so by one's works we're all going to be thrown into the lake of fire by the one by our works by the books that record our deeds we're all going to be thrown he says but the only the only salvation from the lake of fire is to have your name written into the book of life, the singular book. The deeds are judged the righteous, the, uh, in righteousness and all deserve punishment. The punishment for those written in the book of life has already been paid. So it's not like justice is thwarted. And if you got your name stuck in this book, hey, we're going to let we're going to let justice go. No. Justice is served. Each person stands before the throne. Each person stands before the judgment and receives justice. The only difference between those that are written in the book of life and those that are simply judged by what is found in the books is that judgment, justice and righteousness, the penalty for the works that are found in those books has already been paid for those who are written in the book of life. So the ones who are the deeds judged by their deeds in the books, they uh, they must they must face justice. But for the ones whose name is found in the book of life, justice has already been rendered for them on the cross. So we have seen now the culmination of history. John leaps forward in chapter 20 showing us the end. He's showing us the the uh, the entirety of the church age, the intermediate state, but he's also showing us the end of history, the coming of Christ, the judgment that is going to take place as the heavens and the earth flee away from the one who uh, sits on the throne. And as we turn to uh, chapter 21 and 22, my favorite two chapters in the Bible, uh, we are going to look at the new heavens. We're going to look at the new creation. We're going to look at the new earth, the eternal state, and we're going to draw some some dis- we're going to draw some parallels with what we see in the Garden of Eden, but we're also going to see the bliss and the enjoyment of being with our God forever and ever without the curse, without sin, without pain and suffering. I hope you join us for that.